Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at Mary's song in verses 46 down through verse 55. Luke chapter 1, as you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. We're grateful to have each and every one of you today joining us in that way and reach Church DeSoto. It was just a great privilege and a blessing to be able to be out there in person and thank you for all of you back here that were gracious to me and allowed me to do that. I'm especially grateful for the technology that God has given to us that I can do things like that. But DeSoto, it was a blessing to be with you. And also want to welcome the venue service right down the hall. Um, we come this morning to Mary's song. Uh, we've looked at uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Ryan led us in the study of uh, Gabriel's visit to, to Mary, and then we've looked at Zacharias and Elizabeth, and then um, this morning, uh, Mary's song. But just to give us a bit more context here as we look at this passage, Mary is a, a common, ordinary teenage girl uh, growing up in Nazareth. Uh, you'll remember it was said of Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was just an ordinary city, not known for anything special. And here's this young teenage girl. The commentators are, uh, there's a bit of variance on how old they think she is. But from what I've seen, somewhere between 16 to 19 years old. It's amazing the faith that we see in this young teenage girl. And we find that she's betrothed. Um, similar and different in some ways to an engagement. But she's betrothed to, to Joseph, uh, a carpenter. And Joseph is an interesting story because Joseph is in the royal line. He's in the lineage of David. And the fact of the matter is, if it hadn't been for the unfaithfulness of the nation, David could have been king. Uh, but the nation is unfaithful. And he finds himself in Nazareth just as a carpenter. But I'm sure just as most uh, young women, as they get engaged, Mary was excited. She was looking towards that wedding day and celebration with family. And in the midst of that excitement, you'll remember she is visited by Gabriel. And Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a child. This child will be no ordinary child. He'll be the son of the Most High, and he'll sit on the throne of David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. In other words, you're going to be the earthly mother of Messiah. And Mary, I don't think that she doubts that God can do it. She just wonders how. How will this happen? How will this be? Since I've never been with a man. And you remember Gabriel encourages her. Nothing is impossible with God. And I believe it's probably one of the greatest statements of faith ever in Scripture. Mary makes that great statement. Behold the bondservant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Mary submits her life. In fact, that word bond slave, we'll see it again in Mary's song. I believe it's the first mentioning or of anybody in the New Testament referring to themselves as the Lord's bond slave. But that's what she feels. Uh, here I am. Use me however you wish. Knowing that the repercussions for this as a betrothed woman to be pregnant... Uh, to be found unfaithful, the punishment was potentially death. The thought in Mary's heart is, whatever it means, even if it means my death, 
my life is just given unto you. And so she goes on. We don't know exactly how much time passes, but I would imagine that pretty quickly Mary desired to talk to somebody, and there's probably not a lot of people that she can imagine in her life that would believe this story or be an encouragement to her. But there's one person in her life that she obviously looks up to and desires to talk with, and that's Elizabeth. I think it's a good reminder that all of us need some spiritual aunts and uncles in our lives Men and women of faith who've traveled roads that we haven't traveled who can encourage us in the midst of our walk with the Lord. So Mary just wants to go talk with Elizabeth. Surely Elizabeth will understand. You'll remember she goes to Elizabeth and she gives a simple greed. It was a big deal for a younger woman to go to an older woman in that day and to say, I need wisdom. And to look unto a, an elder woman to say, you help me as I, uh, as I move forward in this. But but Mary gets a simple greeting out, and, uh, and, and all of a sudden, uh, the baby leaps within Elizabeth's womb. John the Baptist leaps. Even in the womb, he's <laughs> indicating that Jesus is the Messiah. And Elizabeth quickly says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? It's an amazing statement for this elder woman who is a spiritual mentor to Mary to say to her just after a simple greeting, I'm just blessed to have you and the Lord under my roof. And can you imagine what an affirmation that must have been to Mary? Still a lot of questions in her mind. I don't believe she's indicated to anybody that she's pregnant up to this point. But she gets into Elizabeth's house and with a simple greeting, Elizabeth confirms that you are blessed and you're going to have a child. And this child will be no ordinary child. And then she says in verse 45, Elizabeth says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord had been, a, familiar, a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. It's interesting here because Elizabeth says primarily you are best blessed not just because you're going to be a mother. Yeah, that's a blessing. And not just because you're going to be the mother of the Lord. You're blessed because you're a believer. We talked about this with Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias and Elizabeth are two individuals that we saw very clearly are clinging to the hope of Messiah. They placed their faith and hope in Christ who would come. We placed our faith and hope in a Christ who who has come, but they were clinging to the hope. And here I think we see indicated that Mary has been a believer in the midst of this time when the, spirit, the nation's in spiritual decline. She's been clinging to the hope. It's obvious that, that she knows Scripture, and she knows Scripture about the Messiah. She's going to sing a song, 10 lines of this song, and there's over 15 references to Old Testament passages in a 10-line song. How many of you could write a 10-verse song and include 15 Old Testament passages in it? And how many of you could have done it when you were 17 years old? It's a reminder to us that Mary is a woman of faith, a woman who's clinging to God and his word and the promises of God, and she's blessed because she believed that what God said he would do, he would fulfill. And with this affirmation, Mary sings. There's a lot of singing that goes along around the birth of Christ, and I think it's this good reminder to us that the primary effect of the idea and the truth that God, the sovereign God of the universe, would come for us, would come to save us. That truth, that idea is so great that its, it's primary impact is that we just want to sing. We're just overwhelmed with, with joy. 
that Christianity is not simply about adhering to a set of doctrine. It, it, it is, it, and it's not just about committing yourself to a standard of morality, although it is that. It, it, but it's not just about a commitment to orthodoxy, although it is that. But Christianity is the realization that God has come for me, and it puts joy in my soul. That it causes us to sing. That we as Christians are not a bunch of robots that just believe certain doctrines and truths. We're a people who have joy in our hearts because these truths are real to us. And so Mary, in response to what God has done in her life and in a recognition of what God is fulfilling, she just breaks out in song. And I realize that for some of you this Christmas, maybe you're having difficulty singing. Maybe the circumstances of your life haven't turned out as you had hoped. Maybe you find yourself in a very difficult situation this Christmas. Maybe financially you're in a difficult spot. Maybe vocationally you're in a difficult spot. Maybe relationally in your marriage or with your kids you find yourself in a situation you never thought you would be in and you're having trouble just having joy in your heart because of the circumstances of your life. And I hope and pray what we'll see in Mary this morning is that Mary is going to sing not because of the circumstances around her, but because of the truth of who Christ is in her heart. Uh, I, I was reminded as I was studying this when um, I worked on a ranch one summer in Colorado and difficult, we didn't have, uh, we worked on Sundays. It was really the first time in my life I hadn't been in church on a Sunday morning. Not a lot of believers fellow believers there on the ranch, and there was a guest ranch, and people would come in. And, uh, but it was just difficult for me for the first time not having church and community like I had been used to having. And so I just longed for these afternoons where I get like one afternoon off, and I get a chance to go hike and, and, and find a place just for me and God to be alone in his word. And those were really special times. When you've been in a place where you feel like you're a little bit lonely and you're, you're you're just struggling. It was just so good. And, and I get out one day. I'd taken some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I found a great spot. You know how it is in Colorado. The mountains are there. And sometimes those rain showers will just come upon you very, very quickly. And there I'm sitting. I get, I'm like, you get it like you like it. You know, I got a little log there. And I got a place to sit and, and a little bit of shade. And I get my Bible out, my journal. And I begin to read and journal. And all of a sudden, this just thunderstorm just hits. Like, not just rain, but there was hail in it and all this other stuff. And in the midst of that, I looked up, and there is this bird in the tree, and the bird is singing. Now, initially, I thought, if I had a gun, I'd shoot that thing right there. I'm mad, all right? It can be singing right here. But it was as if God said to me, look at that bird. That bird sings not because of what is surrounding it, but because of what's in its heart. Listen, we are able to sing today because of the truths of who God is and what he's done in our hearts. And so what I want us to see in Mary's song this morning are just some bedrock truths, some truths that no matter where you're at this Christmas, these are the truths that make us sing. So with that in mind, let's pray. I'm gonna invite Ryan to come pray for us. He said he wanted to pray this morning. You gonna come pray? Guys, can we make this mic over here hot? Can we get that mic hot? If you're watching online, this is my good buddy Ryan. Come on up here, Ryan. Ryan's going to pray for us. Ryan is a prayer warrior, comes up and prays with me on Tuesdays. We're going to study God's word. Can you pray over God's word and pray for us this morning? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before your word this morning. 
God, thank you for your love. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Speak to us by means of your word this morning. Change us. Make us sing. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You go right down there. Amen. Well, look, let's look together. Beginning in verse 46. We've got a lot to cover. There's a Chiefs game. I'll get you going, all right? Just hang with me. Buckle in. Verse 46. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. My soul exalts the Lord. It, 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 some of your translation, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's where we get the magnificat. It, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's a hard word to describe. It's a hard word to define. It, it, it's, its depth is almost infinite. To, to magnify, to, to, to glorify, to lift up, to, to prioritize. And I think the picture here is, and I, 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 sometimes I'm guilty of reading too much into Scripture, but the picture here that I see is that the more, what Mary's saying is the more I, my soul, my innermost being, who I am, the more my soul magnifies the Lord, the more joy I have in my heart. And, and I think that is so true. I think that the joy we have in our hearts will often be proportionate to the level at which we magnify God in our lives. The more we magnify God, the more we prioritize God, the more we fix our attention upon who he is and the greatness of what he's done, the more joy we feel in our hearts. When was the last time you took a walk this morning, just walking my dog, taking a quick little walk and looking up, and I love these cooler, it just feels like there's more clarity in the sky. And you just see, you look at the vastness of what God has made. And the more we study and the more we get these telescopes out there, the universe just gets bigger. And you know what it tells me? This thing's a, God's a whole lot bigger than we think he is. And we just, we just, we can't even begin to get the depths of magnifying God and his greatness. But the more we fix our attention, the author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And scripture tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus. No matter where you're at today, what you're going, fix your eyes on Jesus. I love what, what David, I couldn't help but think of Psalm 27 when David said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a hosting camp against me, I will not fear. The war arise against me in spite of this, I will be confident. One thing, remember what he says? One thing I have asked and I shall continually seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold his beauty and to meditate in his temple. Do you know what David was saying? Whatever else is going on in my life, I've learned one thing. That what I experience in the temple when I go to worship I want to experience that every moment of every day because it gives me the ability to live with confidence and without fear. You know what I think David is saying? The more he magnifies God in his life, the more joy he has in his life, no matter what he faces. Listen to me this morning. If you are lacking joy in your heart, my question to you is how much time have you spent magnifying the Lord? Magnify the Lord. What do we sing? Uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will go, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So she rejoices. First of all, she just tells us here what she does. And then she tells us why. So here's these truths. I think I got seven of them. I had six. That's the number of incompleteness. We can't do that, so I had to add a seventh, all right? So we got seven this morning. We'll move through them quickly. But look with me. The very first bedrock truth that makes her sing is in verse 48. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. The first bedrock truth that causes her to sing is the knowledge, the fact that God sees her. That the God of all creation, Lord of heaven and earth, sees her, has noticed her. That my, my translation it says, has had regard, but it means to notice, it means to see, it means to love, it means to cherish, it means to have compassion. Again, it's one of these words that has so much depth to it, but it simply means that, that even though God is the God of all creation, she is at wonder and her heart sings because God has loved her. God has seen her. And some of you this Christmas, you're going through things right now in your life and there's struggles in your life, things that you didn't bring upon yourself. You're just struggling and you're wondering, does God see me? Listen to me. Listen to the testimony of Mary this morning. God sees you. He knows where you're at. It's this wonderful knowledge that God sees us. Um, Corey Tinboon, when she was in... Those concentration camps, they would go out to do morning call. And she said that on almost every morning call, there was the same beautiful bird that she would see flying. And she said every day it was as if it was God's little reminder to her that he sees her. It's tough, but God says... I see you. I think it's the heart of David in Psalm 8 when he says, uh, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you should care about him, yet you've made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory. David looked at the vastness of creation and said, God, why would you even care about me? Why would you even notice me? But the fact of the matter is he hasn't just seen you. He loves you and he's done something for you. Mary rejoices that God has regarded you. I, I, <laughs> Songs come to mind so much as I'm studying, and I was reminded, Faith and I, we, when we were in Montgomery uh, at our church, we had a lady who would sing this song. Uh, on a, it seems like they'd have her once a month sing. She did good with it. But she would sing, Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because, yeah, y'all know it. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. I hope and pray that is an encouragement to you today. 
His eyes on the sparrow know this. He's watching you. That's the first bedrock truth. The second we see in the very next verse, verse says in verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. She notes there that God is mighty. Uh, he's El Shaddai. He, he's the one who has spoken everything that we see into existence. He's far greater than we can possibly imagine. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He's all-powerful. And holy is his name, meaning he's completely set apart. Um, totally distinct from us. He's far more holy than we could ever get our minds around. And yet the, the, the knowledge that overwhelmed her is not just that God is great and mighty and holy, but that this great and mighty and holy God had done great things for her. Notice, she, she says, for me. I don't think there was any doubt in, in Mary's mind that God is great. God is wonderful. He loves the nation. He loves the world. But what overwhelmed her in this moment was the reminder that God loved her individually. It became personal to her. And listen, Christianity and Christmas hasn't really gotten into your heart until you realize that while God so loved the world, most importantly, he, loved, he so loved me and you. And she says here, he's done great things for me. It's a reminder that our faith in Jesus Christ is not just some pie-in-the-sky faith. Oh, yeah, we believe in him, and, and he loves us, and that's great, and that's true. But sometimes people are like, yeah, he loves me. What, is that? What's that? what good does that do me? See, he, it does you a lot of good, because listen, it's not just that he loved you, but his love drove him to do something. He demonstrated his love. He demonstrated the love, his love in, in giving his one and only son to leave the glory of heaven and to come to this earth and to die on a cross for your sins. He has done great things for us. And so whenever we have cause to doubt the love of God, we only have need to look to the cross where Christ died for our sins. What more does he need to do? There's nothing else he can do. He has given his son. He's done great things for me. The third thing that we see is in, in verse 50. It says, and his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. So it's like she moves from this, this wonderful realization that, that God sees me and God loves me and God has done great things things for me but then she begins to stand in on wonder of the fact that God continues to extend his invitation of blessing to all those who will fear him generation after generation he, he, he extends his mercy to generation to generation to those who will fear him and, and the question is what does it mean to fear God it's, it's this idea that's sometimes very hard to explain what does it mean to fear God does it mean we're scared of God well Listen, to some extent, there is a holy respect and fear of God. Um, it's a fearful thing, the author of Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of an angry God. God, listen to me this morning. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, God is to be feared. Listen, what you need to fear is not hell. What you need to fear is standing before a holy, almighty God without the covering of Christ shed blood on your life. But what does it mean? Beyond that, what does it mean for us? 
Uh, the best way I know to describe this is an illustration I've used for a long time. My first uh, mission trip, I went to uh, Zambia, Africa. We were going out to do some survey work, and they paired us up with a translator. And, and my translator, his name was Golden. He had an uh, African name, but that's what we called him, Golden. And we went out with him on these mountain bikes, and they, the missionaries drove us in their truck out into the middle of nowhere. It already felt like the middle of nowhere. And then they drove us out further, and then they put us on mountain bikes and said, go on. And no cell phone. You know, I'm out there in the middle. I have no idea where I'm at. No earthly idea. I'm terrible with directions. Ask my wife. I'm not good. I'm thinking, if I lose this guy, I don't know the language. I don't know where I'm at. At one time, we stopped uh, on our bikes, and he's over there. He said, we got to kill this snake. I'm like, let's just leave it alone. You know, what are we doing? He said, it's, there's a village up here, and if a kid came, it's a venomous snake, and we got to take care of it. And then I start to realize, there's things out here that could kill me. And I don't know. And here's what I realized in my life. If I lose Golden, I'm a goner. I'm a dead man. And I feared losing him. I was stalking him. He got, it got weird. I would, he'd go to the bathroom. I'm like, I'm watching you. <laughs> but I lived in fear of losing that guy. And it hit me, that's the fear of the Lord. It's not that I'm scared of God, but I'll tell you what I am scared. I'm scared of living life without him. How many of you would say today, I can't imagine life without him. It's this reminder, I better stay close. Man, I can't let the word of God get too far away from me because I need his wisdom. I need his guidance. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a sheep. I, I'm, I'm not that smart. I'm a knucklehead. I got to have him. I don't know. I'm, in a, I'm a stranger in a foreign land. That's what it means to fear God. And the beautiful part that, that Mary proclaims here is that from generation to generation, God extends mercy to, to those who realize they can't live life without him. If you know you can't live life without the Lord today, he is abundantly merciful and and listen, mercy is what we need the most, right? Oh, and yet he's abundant in mercy to those who fear him, who live, realize they can't live life without him. Then fourthly, we see here in these verses, look with me at verse 51 through 53. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He's exalted those who were humbled. Uh, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. There's so many truths here, but this is, um, as I was studying this week, this is what I wrote down. That God is most glorified, not in recruiting the great, but in rescuing the impoverished. God gets glory not in recruiting the great, but in rescuing the impoverished. And it's clear here as we read this that we're not talking about physical impoverishment. The picture here is to those who are proud in their heart, to those who think they don't need God, to those who don't have any fear of God, because quite frankly, they think they can live life without God and they're going to be okay. And they think that one day they're going to stand before God and they're going to be able to stand on their own merit. And somehow in their pride, they've been led to believe that it's going to be good enough to stand before God in their own righteousness. 
And what scripture says is, if that is you, quite frankly, Christianity has very little to offer you. If you think you're good enough on your own, we really don't have anything to give you. But the beautiful, the beautiful reality of the gospel is God is not looking for great people. He's not looking for the religious. He's not looking to recruit the wealthy. He is loving raising up and saving sinners. Isn't that good news today? He delights in saving those who are impoverished. And again, we're not talking about physical impoverishment. We're talking about a spiritual impoverishment. And this is where I think it's so critical when we share the gospel, we do so accurately. So many times we go out and share the gospel, we say to people, well, God's got this wonderful, he loves you, he's got this wonderful plan for your life. And those things are both true. God does love you, and he does have a wonderful plan for your life. But if that's all we share with people, listen, there's a lot of people that say, well, I kind of like my life the way it is. And if that is your gospel, that God just wants to bless your life, then that gospel is only for people who don't like their life. But listen, God did not come and send his son so that we could have a better life now. He came to save us from our sins. And that is a gospel for everybody because the fact of the matter is we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's the beauty of the Beatitudes, this picture of salvation, the Beatitudes, the first sermon of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize they're spiritually broke, those who realize they, they have nothing but to stand before God but a plea for mercy. Blessed are those who mourn, who are grieved over their sin. Blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, and that's the picture here Mary is proclaiming that God is not looking for the great and the mighty and the noble, but God delights in saving sinners. We say this often here. If you, listen, if you think that you're doing good on your own, I don't know what to tell you. But if you're here and you know you're a sinner and you know you're broken, boy, do we have a Savior for you. He loves rescuing the perishing. And raising up sinners for his own glory. And then we see another reality in these verses that, that clearly Mary rejoices in the, in the fact that, 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 that evil and unrighteousness will be put down. That those who are arrogant, those who have rejected, those, those who are proud, those who are evil. In fact, she, she speaks of these things. She'll, you'll see there, uh, he is scattered it's in the aorist tense in Greek, but it, it shows up as, as past tense here. It, it, it's, it's her being so confident in the victory of Christ that she speaks about the evil's defeat in the past tense. He has defeated the enemy. Now, we know Satan is a defeated foe, but he has not fully and finally been put down. But one day he will be, and that's what she rejoices in. That's what brings us joy I don't know about you, but we live in a world where far too often it seems like evil is winning. I just had this conversation with my son the other day. You see individuals who are vulgar and just evil and arrogant. And it seems like things work out for them. And you're, you're scratching your head, God, what's going on here? And the message of Scripture is the reminder that one day evil will be put down. I don't know about you, but I live... I think of all the evil that Satan has caused in this world. We see the effects of sin in our world and Satan and what he's done. And we say, when will he put, be put down? One day he will be. 
Uh, you, you guys probably know that one of my favorite movies, certainly at Christmas time, my favorite movie is It's a Wonderful Life. And I love that movie. If you've not seen it, God bless you. Go find it. You, you, you need to see it. And come talk to me. I'll share with you the spiritual importance and significance. There's so many. Um, but one of the questions, the, the most often asked question that Frank Capra got, uh, he would receive a lot of mail. The number one question he got is, what happened to Mr. Potter? Because you don't find out, do you? you it, it's not there. And the question was, was there an alternate ending? Did you, it, was there some other ending? Because you read, you, you see the movie and you're thinking, this guy caused so much heartache. So much frustration for so many people. I mean, does he get his? What happens to him? I mean, I, if I'd have been writing it, I'd have, you know, they, they're singing at the end and somebody comes in and says, we found Potter, it's him, he did it. We found the $7,000 in there. Let all acquaintance, they're dragging him out in the street going, boom, boom, you know, and busting him up and kicking him in the knee, you know. And you're like, yeah, there we go, he gets his. But there's something in us that desires to see evil put down. Listen to me, one day evil will be put down. Satan will be cast in eternal like lake of fire for all of eternity. We read it, we studied it in Revelations, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And all this junk, watching the news and dealing with it in our own families, in our own lives, one day we'll put it all behind us. We're going to a place where there'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. He'll make all things new. No more sin. No more struggles with sin in our own life. Oh boy, that gives us hope this Christmas, doesn't it? That one day the wrong will fail and the right will prevail with peace on earth, goodwill towards men. So there's just a rejoicing in that evil will be put down. And then finally, or actually sixthly, uh, there's a reminder in those last two verses. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. There, there's just this glory in a God who keeps his promises. That, that's the sixth thing. She rejoiced in the truth that God keeps his promises. Remember, Mary and, and Zacharias, Elizabeth, these, these saints, if you read on in Luke, you'll see Simeon and Anna. They're, they're people who have just been hoping in Christ. They've been clinging to the promise that Messiah would come, but they've been looking through a glass dimly. They've been hoping in a promise, but it seems like nothing has happened. And then all of a sudden now, they're seeing it come to fruition, and God's blessing is promised to Abraham to multiply his descendants, and through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed there was a promise of messiah and now all of a sudden they get to see it coming to fruition and they're thinking praise god god has kept his promises and listen in a similar way you and i we exist in a day where we're we're on this side of calvary and the resurrection and we have a lot more knowledge than those of the old testament as they look towards christ now we we look back and we know him by name but but in a similar way we've never seen christ we're, we're reading the New Testament and we're taking God's word for it and we're clinging to the promises that just as assuredly as he came the first time, he'll come the second time. We're hoping, just like Mary did, in a Messiah. I remember what Peter says in his epistle that though you have not seen him, isn't this amazing? We never saw, physically saw Christ like Peter. We didn't see him, his crucifixion. We didn't see him post-resurrection. We've not seen him, but guess what? We love him, don't we? And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And then it was Peter, and you're 
you greatly rejoice and are filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Do you know why? Because just like Mary, we know God's a God who keeps his promises. He said he's coming back. Rest assured, he's coming back. And until then, we're just going to keep clinging to the hope and living life in a way that brings him glory. The final thing, the final thing is this. I think at the heart of all that Mary would say here, because this is not just Mary's personal song, it's our song. But I think the message of Mary throughout this song is, if you trust in the Lord, he will never disappoint you. He will never disappoint you. I think that's what Mary would say. Man, her situation's pretty rough. The circumstances of her life are not great. But the message of Mary is, hang in there. He will not disappoint you. Again, in Peter, Peter says, uh, in 1 Peter 2, he says, this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone and a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And then he says, this, this precious value then is for those who believe. But for those who did not believe, the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they're disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. What Peter is saying, what Mary is saying, listen, you're going to go one or two directions. You're either going to cling to the hope of Christ, you're going to reject him. But listen, for those of us that hope in Christ, temporarily it may look like we're losing. But listen, in the long run, we win. And Christ will not disappoint us. Uh, I was reading this and I happened upon um, Spurgeon's last sermon. I love reading some of Spurgeon's sermons. It's so powerful. And it was his last sermon at uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And he wrote these words. And I think it's similar to the rejoicing of Mary. In fact, I think you could make this into a song. But these are his words. They were meaningful to me. Listen to what he says. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You'll either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. You'll find sin, self, and Satan in the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the yoke of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. He's the most wonderful of captains. There has never been anyone like him among the choices of princes. He's always to be found on the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you will always find it in him. These 40 years and more I have served him. Blessed be his name. And I've had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below if it so pleased him. His service is life and peace and joy. Oh, that you would enter upon it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus even this day. Listen to me. In the testimony of Mary, in the testimony of Peter, in the testimony of Charles Spurgeon, you hope in Christ, you will not be disappointed. He's a wonderful Savior. 
He's not looking for the rich, the intelligent, the wise. He's looking for those that would recognize their sinners and say to him, I can't live life without you. So many songs this week came to my mind. I had written some down. You all ever heard, he knows my name. I have a maker. He formed my heart before even time began. began. My life was in his hands. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls. And he hears me when I call. Isn't that a wonderful Savior? I, uh, the second one I had is Father's World. I was, I was, I'd just been listening to it all week. And this morning I listened to it. You ever just hear a song and you're singing and you just start weeping? And you don't even know why you're crying. But those were too complicated for this morning. I just wanted to keep it simple. And the song that really was on my heart all week is My Jesus, I Love Thee. Bill, will you come lead us? Will you come lead us in that song? I barely got through it in the first service. I love you, Lord. That's why I couldn't get through it. I couldn't remember it. I'm just kidding. Um, I didn't write it down. Bill, you lead us in this song. Let's stand together. If you're at the venue service, if you're at Reach Church, just stand together. My Jesus, I love you. My Jesus, I Father, we thank you so much for what you've done for us. God, I I don't know where everybody's at this morning. I don't know what struggles they're going through, but you do. You know them, you see them, you love them, and you have done great things for them. You sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for their sins, and God, if they've never trusted in you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself by your spirit and your word. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would be encouraged today. No matter what the circumstances of our life are today, I pray that we would sing. God, we would sing because you have loved us. We love you because you first loved us. You loved us when we didn't want you. You loved us when we were unfaithful. And God, we just wanna tell you this morning, we love you and we pray that our love for you would be seen in the actions and the attitude of our life. Help us to sing this Christmas. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.